0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, Why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains a description of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Just before I start, a thank you to listener David Taylor, who pointed out that my reference to Gerald Mack in the last instalment as a Colonel Sergeant wasn't correct. I read it that way because I saw it abbreviated as Col-SGT, but of course, that doesn't make any sense as a rank. David informed me it actually meant Colour Sergeant, a now defunct rank which has mostly been replaced by Staff Sergeant. So thanks very much, David, for pointing that out. Also... A big shout-out to new Patreon supporter Jim Wallace. Your contributions have helped make this instalment. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash ForgottenAustralia, and this link is also in your show notes. Just a reminder, I'm going to be archiving some older episodes of Forgotten Australia on the 27th of May. These are The Battle for Rothbury, The Bombing of Rothbury, In the Execution of Their Duty, The Fugitive, Sydney's Red Year, Australia's First Serial Killer Manhunt, and The Human Glove Mystery. Okay, on with the show. It's the night of the 19th of July, 1916, at Fremel in French Flanders, and Major Robert Henry Beardsmore, along with 12,000 other Australian soldiers, is trying to survive hell on earth. I'm Michael Adams and this is part 2B of the Forgotten Australia episode, The First Dismissal, the public servant who brought down the Premier. On the 19th of July 1916, the 5th Division, AIF, was ordered alongside the British 61st Division to attack German lines at Fromelles. This action's original intention was to draw enemy reinforcements away from the Battle of the Somme. While this was no longer a realistic objective, by the 19th of July, the attack was ordered to go ahead anyway. The 5th Division comprised the 8th, 14th and 15th Brigades, each made up of four battalions. The 30th Battalion, under the command of Major Robert Beardsmore, was part of the 8th Brigade. Many of his men were ex-sailors, some of whom had served with him in New Guinea. From around 11am for 7 hours, Allied artillery pounded German positions. This was meant to wreak havoc and destruction. But rather than soften the Germans up, it simply eliminated any element of surprise. They were ready with their machine guns. Briefly, the Allied objective was Sugarloaf, a German-held salient, or projection out from its front lines. The 30th Battalion's job would be to dig a trench to the new front-line trenches that would hopefully be captured by the men who were about to go over the top. At six that evening, still broad daylight because this was the middle of European summer, four waves of Australian men went into no man's land, one after the other. It was a mass slaughter. The 30th Battalion began shoveling. Australians of the 8th and 14th Brigades had captured sections of German trenches. They were desperately in need of ammunition as well as flanking support but the 15th Brigade had been cut to pieces crossing no man's land and they were suffering even worse losses. Paul Cox's book, Frommel, 1916, tells us of 30th Battalion's desperate mission. Quote, the method of digging the trench was to send men out at intervals across no man's land to dig potholes. As soon as they became large enough for other men to work, more would be sent out to extend the excavations until joined with neighbouring holes. Charles Bean's official World War I war history tells us that the first three of Beardsmore's digging parties were cut to shreds by a fixed German machine gun that took men out at the knees. In the excellent article, Sailors of Frommel, by A.N. Other, and found at the Naval Historical Society of Australia, we get a horrific picture of what it was like for Beardsmore and his men. Quote, The trench digging party spread out across the killing field, along the proposed route of the trench, and literally dug for their lives. As a man would fall, another would take his place. As sections of the trench began to deepen, the engineers positioned sandbags to partly protect the diggers from the machine gun and sniper fire. It did little to protect the men from the shell fire. Across the battlefield, the cries for stretcher bearers from dreadfully wounded men could be heard. One of these artillery shells exploded near Robert Beardsmore, peppering his head, neck and arm with shrapnel. But Beardsmore didn't seek to have these wounds dressed. He continued to command his men in their mission as they tried to carve a corridor through the heavy, wet soil. As far as the word digger goes, I wonder if it's ever been more appropriate. Charles Bean's official history tells us, quote, the Germans at one stage appeared to be moving to counterattack in No Man's Land, and the digging party was bombed and driven in. Yet, towards morning, Major Beardsmore was able to report that the trench almost reached across No Man's Land, though still shallow and unfinished at the farther end. But much of the ammunition intended to be forwarded through it remained clogging the sap. Under this heavy German attack, digging had to be abandoned but now at least soldiers from the 31st and 32nd Battalions could use the trench to retreat more safely. By 8 in the morning of the 20th of July, the Battle of Frommel had been lost. Hundreds of men lay screaming in no man's land amid thousands of bodies. Brigadier General Harold Elliott, known as Pompey Elliott, had warned against the Frommel plan. Seeing the results, he called it a tactical abortion. Major Beardsmore was evacuated for medical treatment in England on the 21st of July. He was one of 5,513 Australian casualties at Fromell. But Beardsmore was one of the luckier ones, because some 2,000 men had been killed in those terrible 24 hours. As the Australian War Memorial website tells us, This is believed to be the greatest loss by a single division in 24 hours during the entire First World War. Some consider Frommel the most tragic event in Australia's history. Beardsmore's wounds were superficial, but they caused him severe ear trouble for a time. On the 5th of August 1916, he was made commanding officer of the 32nd Battalion, which was in the process of being rebuilt after suffering close to 75% casualties at Frommel. For his bravery and leadership at Frommel, Beardsmore was soon after awarded the Distinguished Service Order. His DSO citation read, quote, Though wounded, he organised his company as a working party and supervised their work for ten hours with great coolness and courage. Beardsmore was also promoted to lieutenant colonel. He assumed command of the 32nd Battalion on the 1st of September 1916. Back home in Australia, Prime Minister Billy Hughes the next month held the conscription referendum. While supported by most frontline soldiers, conscription was narrowly defeated back home. Hughes left the Labour Party but remained Prime Minister with the support of the Liberal opposition, soon afterwards merging with them to become the Nationalist Party. You can imagine how all of this was quite bewildering for diggers on the Western Front. It wasn't like they could nip out and buy copies of the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Sun or Labour Call. Newspapers and letters from home took months to reach them. So, what the hell was happening in Australia? That question, in the lead-up to the May 1917 federal election, would be answered for diggers in a publication called All for Australia. This was Keith Murdoch's very first newspaper, and it was filled with vicious anti-Labour propaganda. Indeed, that was its reason for being. With the blessing and authorisation of Prime Minister Billy Hughes and General William Birdwood, commander of AIF Forces... Murdoch served up page after page that basically said if you voted against Billy Hughes, you were being pro-German. What was left of Labor, the newspaper told Diggers, was riddled with pacifists and communists and all sorts of Kaiser-loving scum. All for Australia, which was printed in London, was intended to deliver the Digger vote for Billy Hughes. While Robert Beardsmore's education meant he might have been less susceptible to such crude messages, it's likely he didn't disagree at all with the sentiment behind them. Of course, one of the most prominent anti war, anti Hughes, and anti conscriptionist Labour campaigners was federal member Frank Anstey. The very man, as we heard in the last instalment, whose actions had led to Beardsmore's name being sullied so shamefully in federal parliament. Another of the most prominent anti-conscription campaigners was New South Wales' rising labour man, Jack Lang. Lang represented Auburn, which was where Beardsmore had been area military commander. I'm guessing that Beardsmore would have had about as much time for Lang as he had for Anstey. Under the command of Robert Beardsmore, the 32nd Battalion's next major engagement was at Bopom on the 17th of March, 1917. While essentially a mopping-up operation after the Germans pulled back to the Hindenburg line, it was treated as a great victory and morale booster. Beardsmore was in command, but five days later, he was sent to hospital sick with his ear trouble. It was now that this was apparently used as an excuse to keep Beardsmore away from the front line. Throughout the war, Pompey Elliott kept up regular correspondence with his wife, and their policy was no secrets. In one of these letters, dated the 10th of April, 1917, Pompey spoke highly of an officer and a friend named Harry. Harry, he said, had done, quote, very fine work in the Frommel fight. But, as Pompey explained to his wife, when Harry was offered the command of the 60th Battalion, he refused. Instead, he asked General McKay if he could go over to Pompey's command. This apparently so offended Brigadier General Edwin Tivy, that he then refused to recommend Harry for the DSO. It was all very gossipy. But then Pompey wrote this, quote, Another chap named Beardsmore, who General McKay offered the same job, viz, the CO of the 60th, and refused it to stay with Tivy, got the DSO, although he hadn't done anything like the work Harry had done. Pompey went on, But in view of this, I am just delighted to tell you that Beardsmore turned out quite a rotter, and old Tivy is having him sent away, but as he commended him so highly before, had to square this doctor to certify him as unfit, owing to an abscess in the ear. It's just lovely, isn't it? Now, without more information, it's not possible to say what Tivy's problem was with Beardsmore, whether it was personal or professional or both. But Pompey, who didn't seem to like him, did have the inside track. The same day Pompey wrote this letter, the 10th of April, Beardsmore was discharged from hospital and returned to the 32nd Battalion. But two days later, he was sent back to hospital. Less than a week later, he was detached from the 32nd Battalion and given an administrative role as commander of the 5th Division's base, far from the front lines. This was a big and important job. But it was also a public service style position. In 1918 1919, Beardsmore supervised the demobilization of Australian soldiers. While still in London in July 1919, he was captain of the AIF rifle team that shot at Bisley. His sharpshooters won numerous cups, coming second only to the mother country. Beardsmore himself got the King's badge for shooting. He returned to Australia at the end of December 1919. Beardsmore settled back into life in Strathfield, one of Sydney's best neighbourhoods. He went back to work with the public service and was now chief accountant for the lands department. As far as returned servicemen went, he had it a lot better than most rank-and-file diggers. To give such men a shot at a new life, the soldier settlement scheme had been implemented federally and across the states from 1916. As the State Library of New South Wales's page explains of what became a disaster, Land was available to the soldiers on affordable terms and they could also receive advances of money to make improvements to the land, which was often in poor condition. They could also use the money for equipment, plants, stock and seeds. Soldiers who had received smaller blocks of land often experienced significant hardships. In New South Wales, the Soldier Settler Scheme had first come under the control of William Holman's Nationalist Government. Holman served as Premier until April 1920, and he was followed by Labour's John Storey and then the ALP's James Dooley. Dooley was in April 1922 replaced as Premier by Nationalist Sir George Fuller. So, in terms of the Soldier Settler Disaster, there was plenty of blame to go around. The can had been carried by both Nationalist and Labor administrations. In May 1922, just after Fuller became Premier, former diggers at Bankstown and Campbelltown went public with complaints about their lot. The Sun's headline on the 26th of May read, Soldiers' Farms! Astounding Revelations! Victims Can't Carry On! A week later, a Daily Telegraph headline screamed, Evicted! Soldier Settlers' Plight! All Stock Seized! Families left to wonder. This article began. Soldiers settlers at Bankstown live in hourly dread of eviction. Premier Sir George Fuller denied that soldiers settlers were being treated harshly. He blamed the men for carrying on their farming badly. Premier Fuller's point man on this issue was his deputy leader, the Minister for Lands, Walter Wern. The Premier said Mr. Wern had investigated and communicated with him directly about the matter. Fuller said "Wern quote, "...felt the greatest sympathy for the men, but was reluctantly compelled in the future interests of this settlement to take decisive action." So there had been a couple of evictions. To solve the problem, it had been proposed that soldiers-settlers' liabilities be written down to an amount of £65 per year. This would cover the interest on their loans and repay some of the principal." But Mr. Wan said it couldn't be done because it'd be unfair to soldier settlers who'd made a go of things. Then where would the incentive for the trier be? It would be the worst form of socialism I know of, and if carried out in every branch of primary production, would bring disaster to any country. But Mr. Wan was a reasonable man, and he offered this. I am willing to allow each settler a reduction for any maladministration or errors which can be reasonably charged against the department, and sympathetic consideration for physical ailment, illness or misfortune. This is going a long way. But before being eligible for his tender mercies, there have to be a searching inquiry made. Mr. Wern had just the man for the job, Robert Beardsmore, a quote, distinguished soldier and a most trusted officer. Once Beardsmore had made his report, Mr. Wan would decide who to compensate, who to weed out, and what to do about the settlement. Commissioner Beardsmore began hearing from soldiers at Milpera on the 4th of December 1922. These soldiers' settlers, who were trying to make a living as poultry farmers, said they were being buried in debts old and new. They said their farms were failing because they'd been slugged with big loans for bad land and for inadequate breeding stock and faulty incubators. While they'd been clearing land and trying to get their farms started, these men had been given sustenance payments, and these now had to be repaid at interest. They said that initially they hadn't been sold enough hens by the department, so they'd had to use these birds for breeding rather than for laying but dodgy brood boxes sometimes killed off all of the chicks. Complaints about these incubators went ignored for years, and then the men had to go deeper into debt to pay for new brood boxes. Other times they said the department sold them what were claimed to be two-year-old hens, only for the soldier settlers to find they'd been lumped with six-year-old birds that were past laying eggs. When they asked permission from the department to get rid of these boilers, they were refused, and that meant they had to pay for feed for these non-productive birds. So, more debt for this feed, and more interest payments. In addition to stock and equipment problems, some settlers said they'd been saddled with land that was prone to flooding, and they'd paid the department for houses that were very quickly uninhabitable. Over the best part of two weeks, Commissioner Beardsmore heard case after case of hardship two out of three settlers were up against the wall after five years of trying, and even the one in three who were doing better were only just keeping their heads above water. Beardsmore believed that some of these ex-diggers had made a hash of things, but interviewing the settlement's manager, he said, It appears to me that, apart from the individual faults of the settlers, there is serious lack of management. Beardsmore went out to inspect the farms, and he'd also hear from experts. On the 18th of December, when an official from the Department of Agriculture said that the cost of building the Bankstown settlement had actually been less than others, Beardsmore replied, quote, Heaven help the others then. By the end of the month, Beardsmore was preparing his report for Minister Wern. The evening news asked Beardsmore if he had anything to say about the inquiry. He replied, I have nothing to say to the press. But then Beardsmore relented and he added, quote, Naturally, I have drawn certain conclusions, but even these may be altered when I hear the departmental evidence in rebuttal of the soldiers' charges. That sounded very much like he'd taken the side of the diggers, but was willing to have his mind changed by what his boss had to say. The New South Wales public and newspaper reporters eagerly awaited the release of Beardsmore's report. But it never came. Month after month in 1923, Mr. Wan refused to divulge its contents. Nevertheless, he kept evicting soldier settlers. By June, he'd gotten rid of 24 out of 50, and those farms were now vacant. Still, he wouldn't table the report. As the Evening News reported, The Minister denied that Colonel Beardsmore had indulged in criticism to any great extent regarding the formation or methods of the settlement. If that was the case, why the secrecy? After all, the nationalist Fuller government had only been in power for a month when the Bankstown settlement became an issue. They were hardly to blame. But remember that Mr Wann, on announcing the inquiry, had promised that if settlers had been adversely affected by management or government, they might be compensated. Dozens of settlers were tens of thousands of pounds in debt. If Beardsmore's report showed that the department was at fault, or even only partly at fault, then the fuller government might have to pay up. Newspapers howled that Mr. Wan had no right to suppress a taxpayer-funded inquiry into a taxpayer-funded settlement. Then Mr. Wan added insult to injury when he said the only reason he wasn't making the report public was to protect the soldier settlers. Quote, If Parliament forces me to publish it, I will be very sorry for the diggers. Mr. Wan also claimed that secrecy protected future public servants. Quote, Colonel Beardsmore's report was a confidential one from an officer of my department to his minister. If I made it public, I'd never be able to induce an officer to conduct such an inquiry again. Soon, all the settlers were gone from Bankstown and that land was sold to civilians. So the fuller government made money rather than paid money. Robert Beardsmore had again been at the centre of what looked very much like a cover-up. Where had his duty been in this case? With the National State Government and his minister? Or with diggers who'd suffered immensely in hellscapes like Fromell? What was the moral thing to do? Beardsmore could have written to Mr. Wan and said that the minister's actions had placed him in a difficult position. Beardsmore might have then told newspaper reporters that he had lodged a protest or he could have told journalists what his report contained. Doing any of these things might have forced Premier Fuller to act in the interests of the soldier settlers. But of course, doing any of these things could also have killed Robert Beardsmore's career. Any of these actions might also have put a nationalist government in danger and handed ammunition to the incoming Labour opposition leader, Jack Lang. So Beardsmore kept quiet. When he appeared in the newspapers again, it was in relation to the National Rifle Association. There he was, trying to secure cut price ammunition for the organisation from the Federal Defence Minister. There he was again, asking the Defence Department to give service rifles to civilian trainees. It should be noted that the National Rifle Association was partly funded by the Defence Department. The New South Wales State Government also allocated grants so members could compete in interstate competitions. For instance, in 1924, Beardsmore was elected captain of the New South Wales team to compete in Launceston. The Tasmanian shootout was a complete success. As the Daily Telegraph reported, quote, By winning all three matches at Launceston, the New South Wales rifle team under Colonel Beardsmore has created a record and gained the highest possible honours in interstate marksmanship. Beardsmore was again in the press in June 1925. That was because he was supporting his local nationalist state member, Sir Thomas Henley, in demanding a new train station for Strathfield. As a little flash forward, in September 1931, Sir Thomas Henley, still a member of Parliament, was to go on record as a proud member of the new Guard. And I'll tell you this, he said, if it comes to it, I'll shoot too. But back to June 1925. That was the month Jack Lang won his first term as Premier he also took the role of treasurer. In addition to social reforms, one of Lang's first actions, dubbed "Labour's Revenge in the Papers, was to force the resignation of Bertram Stevens as Under Secretary of the Treasury. This was characterized as the radical Lang sacking a public servant for doing his duty. Lang responded by saying the press hadn't made so much as a peep when his nationalist predecessors had put the broom through the public service. But this very public dismissal was to make Bertram Stevens into a conservative hero, and he parlayed that into a nationalist political career. In 1927, when Thomas Bavin, Beardsmore's old debating pal, beat Jack Lang, he appointed Bertram Stevens as his assistant treasurer. In September 1928, Stevens appointed a budget committee to advise the government on financial reforms. Among the members, Robert Beardsmore. Less than six months after that, coal lockouts began in the Hunter Valley. Jack Lang, in his memoirs, would say that this was the real start of the Great Depression in Australia. As we heard in the last instalment, Thomas Bavin's government sent Mines and Forest Minister Reginald Weaver up to the Hunter Valley. There, he stirred up trouble. When it came to reopening the Rothbury mine, which, remember, the owners had closed because unionists wouldn't be pressured into taking an illegal pay cut, Reginald Weaver and Robert Beardsmore were sent to establish a camp that would be used by scabs and police sent to protect them. The camp needed things like tents, camp beds, cooking facilities, and so on. And these were supplied by the National Rifle Association, which, as we just heard, was federally funded. The new Labour Prime Minister, James Scullin, did not need this. His government was already contorting itself because it had campaigned on supporting unionists against the coal barons. Now, it wasn't doing that. And worse, without its consent, he was the NRA contributing to breaking the miners. For that matter, Colonel Beardsmore wasn't acting with the consent of the association's own council. He and NRA secretary, Major Herbert Dakin, had just made a command decision. On Friday the 13th of December 1929, the Evening News reported there'd been the first skirmish in what it called the Battle of Rothbury. As a train packed with police and scabs, NRA building materials, stretchers and camping material went right into the colliery yard, the miners outside fumed and held a war council. Quote, The train arrived at the mine at 9.30 and was met by a posse of police. Colonel Beardsmore, who is in charge of operations, cleared the ground of strangers. The paper went on approvingly, Colonel Beardsmore is making arrangements to make the camp as nearly like a military compound as possible. The men will be afforded every protection, both in the mines and while off duty. The next day, the NRA equipment in question was explained as a business deal. Premier Thomas Bavin said, I'm not quite sure that the Prime Minister understands the whole of the facts with regard to these stores we have obtained from the NRA. This is a private organisation, subsidised, I understand, by the Commonwealth Government and assisted by the State Government. Bavin continued, We found that this association had a large number of tents, beds and bedding which was lying unused and we made an arrangement with them to rent it from month to month. This was an ordinary business arrangement which might have been made with any business organisation or firm. Except, of course, that any other business organisation or firm likely wouldn't be receiving substantial monies directly from the federal government. NRA Secretary Major Herbert Dakin told the press that the Commonwealth had last year subsidised the NRA to the tune of £1,200. But he added that in that same period, the association had paid out £7,000 in prize money. This actually made it sound like a well-off organisation that didn't need the Commonwealth's help, particularly now that Wall Street had crashed and the Great Depression was underway and conservatives like him were calling for spending to be cut. Major Dakin argued that the NRA equipment was the property of the association and anyway, it had been hired out previously. But earning a few bob by renting out tents for a charity picnic or similar was one thing. This was something very different. Extraordinarily, Mr. Dakin told the press that Prime Minister Scullin had sent an urgent message direct to Colonel Beardsmore asking him to cancel the hire of the equipment. From Rothbury, Colonel Beardsmore had replied to the Prime Minister that morning. And what he told the Prime Minister was that he should communicate with the Minister of Mines, that is, Reginald Weaver. So here, Under a direct instruction from a Labour Prime Minister, he deflected to a Nationalist State Minister. Was this Robert Beardsmore following his duty? In 1932, he'd decide that it was his duty to follow a Conservative Prime Minister against his Labour State Minister. It's hard to argue that there was consistency here. On that Friday of the first skirmish at Rothbury... The 13th of December 1929, Labour Daily ran an article that questioned Beardsmore and his gun club. The headline read, "That Rifle Association, National or Nationalist? The Beardsmore Connection." The paper said he was a conduit for getting supplies to Rothbury at short notice. Labour Daily, which was remember controlled by Jack Lang, gave readers a potted account of Beardsmore's career. It said he was now being paid about £15 a week, or £780 a year. This was about three to five times what a coal miner at Rothbury might hope to make, and that was before he was told he had to take a 12.5% pay cut. The Sun reported that Beardsmore had almost completed his Rothbury camp work, and that he was due to return to Sydney on Monday night. But... As we've heard in the last instalment and in the Rothbury episodes, on that morning, the 16th of December, 1929, 5,000 union members marched on Rothbury. Police opened fire, killed one miner and seriously wounded eight others. It had been reported that the police had shot 122 bullets. What the miners didn't know was that, in an echo of Fromell, this had left the police out of ammo. Inside the colliery, from 9.30am, Reginald Weaver and Robert Beardsmore prepared to fight for their lives. They knew that the police could not defend them if it came down to it. And if the miners rushed the colliery, they'd have to make their last stand in its small office. The Daily Telegraph described the scene, "'Every free labourer and workman, numbering about 40, was called in from all parts of the ground, and they were told to arm themselves.'" This they proceeded to do, with pick handles, iron spikes and stout sticks. Two enterprising young men made catapults, which shot stones of up to a distance of a 100 yards. Enterprising, sure, but if the angry Unionists breached the mine, a couple of slingshots wasn't going to save anyone's lives. The Daily Telegraph report continued, The yelling of the miners outside the fence, coming down to the pathetic defenders, was sufficient to strike terror into the hearts of the stoutest. There was no joking. All were silent and nervous. Colonel Beardsmore was reportedly calm and in control. He had two cars brought around and pulled up in front of the office. To the miners, it had looked like they were just parked, but in reality, they formed something of a barricade. Quote, the men were told that immediately any movement was made towards the office, they should retreat inside and take up positions at doors and windows, using mattresses as guards. Even the Daily Telegraph, with its boy's own adventure tone, had to admit that in doing this, Beardsmore had abandoned the police outside to their fate, which, without ammunition, might very well have been death. But fortunately, help did arrive. Quote, this dangerous state of affairs was relieved at 11.30 when a trooper got through the bush from Brankston with sufficient ammunition to issue the police with a few rounds each. One of the men in the colliery office told the paper, Those two hours were like three months. He said the tension had been so great that when they were relieved, the men inside could only manage a feeble cheer. But Beardsmore, Weaver and company were just fine. Outside, a miner lay dead and several more were severely wounded. A few days later in Parliament, Jack Lang thundered, What answer has this government to give the people when they ask it why it ordered Australians to shoot down their fellows in an industrial dispute? It is a revelation to the people that in this country it is still possible for a government to compel the workers at the point of the revolver to work for wages lower than those prescribed by a lawful tribunal, and to shoot and kill those of its people who resist such unlawful demands. As for Reginald Weaver, Lang said, Everything he has said, everything he has done, has been either a taunt, a sneer, or a challenge to the men. If the unfortunate miners are to be shot down like dogs, what is to be done to the swashbuckling minister, who, with an army of police, went among the miners while they were yet peaceful, rattling the sabre? We will go the miners, was the taunt he flung at them. How did Lang feel about Beardsmore? It's not on record, at least then. But he would have known who Weaver's comrade had been inside the colliery. And how about Beardsmore? how did he feel about Jack Lang? It stands to reason he would have despised him, just as Reginald Weaver did. As we've heard, Weaver went on to become deputy leader of the United Australia Party under Thomas Bavin and then Bertram Stevens. And during the May 1932 crisis, Weaver would be the most outspoken government defender of the New Guard. In 1930, in the wake of Rothbury, the Great Depression was worsening. Being out of work, out of money, and out of hope had a terrible impact on the mental and physical health of millions of people. Here's a very sad Sydney case, which made news all over Australia. On the evening of the 11th of September 1930, a 65-year-old Marrickville carpenter was at the end of his tether. This old chippy had been depressed because he'd been out of work for months. While he owned three properties at Wollongong valued at £1,200, they were mortgaged for nearly half this amount. Under this stress, the carpenter said he was going to go and see his brother. But that night, he didn't do that. Instead, he stayed home and he brooded. At 4.30 the next morning, his adult son awoke in the Marrickville house and heard a terrible groaning coming from downstairs. He rushed down and found his father on the kitchen floor. The old man had used a knife to cut his throat and then slice open his stomach. When the ambulance men arrived, he was screaming in agony. They managed to get him to hospital, but he died just after 6am. This man's name? Frederick William Beardsmore. He was Robert's older brother. Which brother had Frederick intended to visit before committing suicide? It might have been Robert, or it could have been another brother named Charles. Frederick was buried a couple of days later. On the 22nd of September, the dead man's son, Fred Jr., Robert's nephew, gave horrible evidence at the coronial inquest. Before he died, his father had said, What have I done? Haven't I been a fool? Is my neck much cut? Can the doctor fix me up? If Robert was at the inquest to hear this harrowing evidence, it wasn't recorded. What did make the papers was that that day he was at Parramatta attending a testimonial to Edwin Brown, who'd been chairman of his beloved NRA for 25 years. We don't know what sort of relationship Robert had with Frederick or how the tragedy affected him. Perhaps the brothers were on the outs. Fair enough, that happens. But did it bring the terrible personal cost of the Depression home to Robert Beardsmore? He may have seen his brother as a working class man driven to desperation. He might have seen him as a middle-class investor who'd hit the skids. But either way, at this point, Robert Beardsmore, along with other conservatives, couldn't blame Jack Lang, because in New South Wales, he was still in opposition, about to go to election. Federal Labor MP Frank Anstey was one of Lang's strongest supporters when he campaigned against Premier Thomas Bavin and against the Premier's plan that followed Sir Otto Nehemiah's 1930 recommendations to fix Australia's economic woes. In October 1930, Anstey spoke at Lang's rallies. By then, he'd toned down his public anti-Semitism. He'd removed some of the more hateful parts of his 1915 book, The Shylock Solution, and re-released it as The Money Power. But the dog whistles were still there. He told a Lang crowd, quote, Over three million people are destitute in England today, and the Nehemias and all his clan cannot solve it. Nehemiah wasn't Jewish, but many thought that he was, and this included Lang, who bought into the anti Semitic conspiracy theories and who would also rail against the London money power. Meanwhile, that same month, October 1930, at least according to the Labour Daily, Beardsmore was copping flack from NRA members over Rothbury. At a Randwick meeting, when he tried to speak, he was met with cries of, ''Sit down!'' and ''You are not at Rothbury now!'' Jack Lang was swept back into power that month. Thus began the argy-bargy over Sir Otto Niemeyer's plan, the Premier's acceptance of it, and Lang's increasing resistance and advocacy of the Lang Plan. This in turn led to the federal downfall of Labor's James Scullin, the rise of the United Australia Party, and former Labor man Joe Lyons becoming its leader and then Prime Minister. Of course, during this frame, the New Guard also emerged. Eric Campbell's followers threatened communists with deportation, physically attacked them and Labor supporters, and made dark plans to overthrow Jack Lang's government. So, was Robert Beardsmore a member? We don't know. He was a member of the Imperial Services Club, which was where Campbell had founded the New Guard with a handful of other ex-AIF officers. The New Guard's command structure was entirely comprised of such men, and many of its rank-and-file members were ex-officers and servicemen. There was also a large crossover in New Guard and Rifle Club membership. When the new guard hinted at armed resistance, it was believed that in this eventuality, they'd be relying on the guns and ammunition owned by such crossover members. Given all of that, Robert Beardsmore, DSO, long-standing executive member of the NRA and high-profile public servant with friends in nationalist and UAP places, was a prime candidate for the new guard. I feel it's almost certain he would have been asked to join. He might not have liked Eric Campbell, or he might not have liked the idea of such an organization. He may have wanted to, but worried that if his membership was discovered, it would jeopardize his public service career. But of course, he may have joined the ranks, with his membership, like that of most New Guardsmen, kept a strict secret. Even if Beardsmore didn't sign up, based on what we've heard, I think it's safe to assume he was entirely in sympathy with the New Guard's bitter opposition to Jack Lang. And Beardsmore had all the more reason to oppose the Premier in November 1931 when Jack Lang flatly refused the NRA a £175 grant to cover their rail travel to a competition. Given Lang was being hammered continually by Conservatives about spending and debt, why would he hand money to this organisation? Particularly when it had so recently boasted of being able to give out £7,000 in prizes. Given that Beardsmore had been the conduit for NRA equipment to reach Rothbury, this may have been Jack Lang's way of settling an old score. Certainly, Lang's Labor Daily had castigated Beardsmore at the time and subsequently. I believe what would have added to Beardsmore's likely antipathy to Lang was that Frank Anstey was loud in his support for repudiating debts to London. At one meeting at this critical time, he said, quote, I have always supported the Lang plan. If it is a question of starving the people at home or paying out debt overseas, I say default overseas. This was a major reason the New Guard wanted Lang gone. Despite Francis de Groot's Sydney Harbour Bridge stunt at the opening on the 19th of March 1932 and the New Guard petitioning the Governor Sir Philip Game for Lang's dismissal, On the 20th of April, it was reported that the state government was not going to sack New Guard members from the public service. From the Sun, quote, The government has sweeping powers over permanent members of the service, who can be dismissed under Section 65 without stated reasons and without superannuation rights. This section, however, was intended for use only in serious cases, and anything like its wholesale application for political reasons was never contemplated. It is not expected that the government will create a precedent. Jack Lang might not be about to sack new guardsmen who were public servants, but he was about to make public servants frontline troops in his war against Joe Lyons. Lang instructed public servants to pay state revenues into the New South Wales Treasury so the feds couldn't get their hands on them. He ordered the Department of Taxation's doors locked, and that meant that hundreds of public servants had to go on leave. Prime Minister Lyons responded with federal laws directing New South Wales revenue had to be paid into the Commonwealth Bank. And then, on the 11th of May, in his role as Chief Accountant with the Lands Department, Robert Beardsmore was faced with those two contradictory directives. One from the Land Government, the other from the Commonwealth. Beardsmore had a decision to make. In his formative years, through debating, Beardsmore had been associated with Thomas Bavin, who'd been conservative premier and until recently, leader of the opposition against Lang. In 1915, he'd seen his military reputation tarnished by the actions of Lange supporter Frank Anstey. In 1916 and 1917, Lang and Anstey had been among the leaders of the successful campaigns against conscription, seen by AIF officers like Beardsmore as a stab in the back. In 1922, Beardsmore had kept quiet while a conservative state minister buried his report on soldier settler complaints. In 1929, Beardsmore and New Guard apologist Reginald Weaver had used NRA equipment to make it possible for cops and scabs to break the union miners at Rothbury. And at Rothbury, Beardsmore had refused a directive from Labor Prime Minister James Scullen by deferring to Conservative State Minister Reginald Weaver. Then, just months ago, Lang had refused funding to Beardsmore's beloved NRA. So was there any doubt about what Beardsmore would decide? How neutral was this public servant when he picked up his pen to side with Joe Lyons and the Commonwealth? Once he was ordered to go on leave by his boss, Mr. Tully, minister of lands, did Beardsmore simply walk out and go home to Strathfield or did he pick up the phone and call reporters or any one of his powerful nationalist friends? Beardsmore had been a public servant for more than 40 years. He had to know how this would play out, and in whose favour. On the 13th of May, 1932, Governor Sir Philip Game was awaiting an answer from Jack Lang. The Premier had to prove that his orders to public servants were legal, or he had to withdraw them. That very morning, the New South Wales Parliament had passed Lang's incendiary mortgage taxation bill. In Canberra, Joe Lyons's government was rushing through emergency legislation to nullify it. The newspapers were full of this clash, but they also had the inside scoop now on what had happened to Beardsmore in the Lands Department. The Sydney Morning Herald had the story and said Beardsmore had been sent on leave. That sent on leave was put in double quote marks, was meant to indicate it was a little more sinister than that. Beardsmore, the paper said, had suffered this for attempting to carry out the federal law. The paper knew specifics. It reported he'd ordered his cashier to make payments to the Commonwealth Bank on the Wednesday and that this had been countermanded by his boss. It knew that he'd tried again yesterday and had then been told to go on leave. What the Sydney Morning Herald didn't report was that Beardsmore had written that letter we heard part of in the last instalment. Yet it had run the most important part almost verbatim on the 14th of May. Quote, Mr. Beardsmore found himself in a very difficult position, in which his loyalty to the state conflicted with what he regarded as an obligation to obey the law. His decision was that it was his clear duty to obey the law and to make the payment into the Commonwealth Bank, as directed by the proclamation. How did the Herald get this comment, or even a copy of the letter? Especially as on the 13th it said, quote, Mr. Beardsmore, interviewed by a Herald reporter last night, declined to make any statement. In reply to a question, he admitted that he was now on leave. The inside scoop didn't appear to come from Jack Langside, the Herald also telling reporters, quote, The Greatest Secrecy is being maintained in government, official and ministerial circles concerning the incident. The Daily Telegraph's headline on the 13th of May was, Public Servant is Sent Away. And it too had all the details, and also reported Beardsmore had, officially at least, said no comment. The Daily Telegraph commented darkly that he was but the first such public service sacrifice, Quote, "It is expected that these tactics will be followed in the case of every official who attempts to obey the federal law, and there is uneasiness in the public service as to the outcome." On Friday the 13th, as readers devoured this and other news relating to Lang, the governor and the premier exchanged urgent letters. Then they had a meeting at 3 p.m. Afternoon tabloid The Sun soon hit the streets. The headline, Lang government may be dismissed by governor. Virtual ultimatum to Lang. Crisis develops suddenly. Lang sees governor. Sir Philip Game contended that Lang's directive was making his ministers disobey the law. If they would not desist, then they must resign. Lang responded in a letter, You are hereby informed that your request is refused. Sir Philip Game's response read, Dear Mr. Lang, your letter informing me that ministers are not prepared to tender to their resignations has just reached me, in view of this and of your refusal to withdraw the circular. I feel it is my bounds and duty to inform you that I cannot retain my present ministers in office and that I am seeking other advisers. I must ask you to regard this as final. Governor Sir Philip Game had just sacked Jack Lang and his entire government. Amid a flurry of activity as staff removed boxes and prepared to vacate, a Sydney Morning Herald reporter was given an interview with the now ex-Premier. Lang told him simply, quote, Well, I am sacked. I am dismissed from office. Well, I must be going. I am no longer Premier, but a free man. I have attempted to do my duty. Jack Lang put on his coat and his hat, shook hands with several officials, messengers and even office boys. Then, off he went. The Herald and others would speculate that Lang had deliberately invited his own dismissal. Some commentators down the decades would say the same. Suggested motives included the hope that by forcing another election, he'd get a renewed mandate, or that Lang wanted to go out as a martyr before taking a tilt at federal politics. It's been said that Lang knew his mortgage taxation bill wasn't going to save his skin because the Commonwealth would scupper it. On the 13th of May, to avoid dismissal, all Lang had had to do was withdraw the circular that Beardsmore had turned into a make-or-break issue. Jack Lang could have done this and lived to fight another day, but it would have been an uphill battle all the way. Once he was given his marching orders, some have asked, why did Jack Lang go so quietly? Why didn't he refuse to leave office? Lang would say that he was a man of peace, and if he'd done this, it might have led to violence on the streets, even led to an armed clash between the Commonwealth and New South Wales. He didn't want that, and so he went quietly. Sir Philip Game appointed United Australia Party opposition leader Bertram Stevens as caretaker premier. A state election was to be held in June. The day after the dismissal, Robert Beardsmore was declared a hero, the Daily Telegraph ran his photo in military uniform under the headline He started it. Their article about him bore the banner, took the risk, man who defied the Lang Edict, law came first. The article began, quote, The hero of the drama is Lieutenant Colonel R. H. Beardsmore, who, alone of the higher departmental executives, defied the Lang Edict. It went on to tell readers that Friday the 13th had held no terrors for Beardsmore. In fact, 13 was his lucky number. He even had his lockers marked with that numeral. Further, quote, Though 59, he looks under 40, ruddy of complexion, of spare form, and with a keen eye, he at once arrests attention by his alertness and decisive address. According to this gushing report, quote, When the federal proclamation arrived in the Lands Department last Monday, nobody had any doubt as to what Beardsmore would do. In the Sun's headline, he was, quote, Official David, who slew Lang Goliath. Smith Weekly called him a victim to duty. The Wagga Wagga Express had him as the man who defied Lang. The Bullison said he had shown, quote, the finest example of moral courage seen during the crisis, and that his name will shine brightly when the history of these stormy times is written. A little later, the Sydney Morning Herald would say he had defied, quote, the marauding hand of the political tyrant. The newspapers had plenty of justification for taking this approach. Robert Beardsmore had taken a stand, and he had followed the law. There was nothing wrong with what he'd done. But Beardsmore also had strong motivation and powerful political allies against Lang. His track record also suggests he chose to do the right thing when it suited him politically. Robert Beardsmore was back in the Lands Department the Monday after the dismissal. In the weeks ahead, Bertram Stevens used Robert Beardsmore in campaign speeches on his way to thrashing Labor and becoming New South Wales Premier. In that election, Jack Lang kept his seat and remained opposition leader, but he would never again lead government. With Lang gone and a relatively moderate UAP government ruling New South Wales, the New Guard's reason to exist had suddenly evaporated. Almost overnight, it was a spent force. Four months after the election, in October 1932, the Labor Daily reported that Premier Stevens' government had illegally violated the Public Services Salaries Act by slashing the remuneration of thousands of public servants. It asked why the governor hadn't asked for the circular directing this to be withdrawn. Quote, Nor is it known that Colonel Beardsmore, who protested against one, is protesting against the other. According to Lang's newspaper, this was the double standard of the so-called neutral public servant. In April 1933, Smith Weekly said Beardsmore had gotten his reward from the Stevens government when he was appointed as a member of the state superannuation board. This job was for seven years, and that would take him past retirement age. Beardsmore would also get a pay bump to £900 a year, when most workers were suffering salary cuts. Beardsmore was also to be one of Premier Stevens' economic advisers, including telling the government where it should reduce spending. Beardsmore also became treasurer of the Australian Jockey Club. Adding to his prestige, he was also the honorary treasurer of New South Wales' 150th anniversary celebrations in January 1938. Of course, it was that Australia Day that was marked by Indigenous Australians holding their first day of mourning. Much of what they were mourning was the work done by the Aborigines Protection Board. Its extraordinary powers, in part, the work of Robert Beardsmore. For Beardsmore's role in the 150th celebrations, he was awarded an MBE. In November 1938, Jack Lang commented on a bill relating to the Imperial Services Club. In Parliament, Lang mused how the New Guard had grown out of that organisation and he alleged that Reginald Weaver had been a New Guard member. Of the Imperial Services Club role now, he said, One of the members of this so-called club is Mr Beardsmore. If that is the person who is now a member of the state superannuation board and who violated his obligations as a member of the public service by his Judas-like action, it will be realised how great a disturber of the peace this organisation became and how it wielded a powerful influence that was detrimental to the freedom of democracy and the state. I think it's safe to say that Jack Lang was no fan of Robert Beardsmore. While Beardsmore's role in Lange's dismissal is pretty obscure, what's even more obscure and to me utterly remarkable is that this same man played a significant role in the downfall of Lange's successor, Bertram Stevens. In August 1939, just a month before the start of the Second World War, there came a startling revelation in the New South Wales Parliament. Premier Stevens had come to Beardsmore and to the president of the superannuation fund board with a pretty big ask. How about they sell one million pounds worth of securities belonging to members and then loan the money directly to the New South Wales Treasury? Beardsmore and his crony did what was asked. One million pounds went to the state government on a promise to pay it back simply adjusted for inflation, £1 million is about $95 million today. In terms of buying power, it was probably about twice that. So, a big chunk of change, and not a single penny had been paid back. In Parliament, Labour member Clarence Martin said, I believe the board has been coerced by the Premier. I make the charge that two members of the board have received full value in payment for the treacherous act they have committed. Mr. Martin said this loan, if not actually illegal, was at least extremely dubious from a moral perspective. He recalled Robert Beardsmore's history. Wasn't this the same public servant who'd taken a stand against Jack Lang for doing far less? Beardsmore, past retirement age, was now on a salary of £950. Mr. Martin said he was in the pocket of the Premier rather than serving the public servants who were paying into the superannuation fund he was charged with looking after. Mr. Martin demanded all correspondence between the Board and the Premier over the past four years. He said he didn't believe the money was a loan. He said the money had just been handed over and hidden in the Treasury accounts. The documents he asked for were not produced. Instead, the State Treasurer had two letters – One from the Premier setting out the terms of the transaction and one from the board president saying he was happy with it. Mr. Martin said of the superannuation fund, It used to have £1 million in the best security in the country. Now it has only an entry in the Treasury books. Did Robert Beardsmore, now a public servant almost 50 years, raise any sort of concern with Premier Stevens over the legality and or propriety of this so-called loan? If he did, no one said a word about it in the newspapers. This scandal was seized upon by the UAP's Eric Spooner, who'd recently resigned from the New South Wales Cabinet. Mr Spooner charged Premier Stevens with having used the loan to reduce the state's deficit by £1 million, while increasing the public debt by that very same amount. Premier Stevens did have a large electoral majority, but when a no-confidence vote was brought, Eric Spooner and a handful of other UAP members sided with the opposition. Premier Stevens lost 43 to 41. He was out as leader, replaced as Premier by the UAP's Andrew Mayer. The Public Service Association remained incensed at how their superannuation had been used and demanded that the board be reconstituted. That's exactly what Premier Andrew Mayer announced in November 1939. But Robert Beardsmore wasn't sacked. The loan, as much as it seemed to stink to high heaven and be swayed in secrecy, had supposedly been legal. And further, punishing Beardsmore, that hadn't worked out so well for the Lang government. Beardsmore and the president of the superannuation board were allowed to serve out the rest of their terms. Beardsmore retired in April 1940. After 50 years, his career of public service was at an end. Through the 1940s, Beardsmore would pop up in the news very occasionally, giving his opinion on Australian soldiers in the war, scoring well in a rifle shoot, and in connection with his role as treasurer of the Australian Jockey Club. Robert Beardsmore died on Christmas Day 1959. Despite everything he'd done, the Sydney Morning Herald didn't run an obituary. Jack Lang kept on keeping on. Though, after electoral defeats in 1935 and 1938, he lost the leadership of the New South Wales Labor Party, he remained a member of the Legislative Assembly until August 1946. In 1947, with liberal preferences because he was now a member of his own party, the ALP Non-Communist, he won the Federal Seat of Reid, which he held for two years. Slowly but surely, Lang's legacy became that of a legend. A figure revered even in quarters where he used to be hated. Among his acolytes from 1962 was the young Paul Keating, whose Boilermaker father had been a Lang supporter. And that same year, 1962, the Lang vs. Beardsmore drama had a very curious sequel. As we heard in part one, back in 1910, Jack Lang had had a son with his mistress. This boy, who was accepted into the Lang household, was named James Christian Lang. Known as Chris, he'd follow his father into politics. He was elected to the same seat in Auburn and then later went on to run the Auburn Star Balcott Building Society that his old man had established way back in 1906. In 1962, there was a scandal brewing. Members claimed they'd been promised loans by Chris Lang and these had never eventuated. Moreover, the society was in financial dire straits and liquidators had to be appointed. On the 17th of October, the Registrar of the Cooperative Building Societies ordered that Star Bowkett be wound up. See, Chris Lang had repeatedly failed to file the society's financial returns. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported, this gave rise to the belief that the affairs of the society were not being conducted properly. Now, as we also heard in Part 1, in 1912, Robert Beardsmore had a son. His name was Henry Robert Beardsmore, and Henry followed his father into accountancy. Henry was one of the two liquidators who were tasked with winding up the building society that Jack Lang had built and Chris Lang had seemingly trashed. Did this registrar who made this appointment know what he was doing when he appointed Henry to this job? It's hard to believe that no one realised the link, yet oddly the Sydney Morning Herald wouldn't point it out. On the 22nd of October, 1962, the Chief Judge in Equity, Mr. Justice McClelland, authorised Henry Beardsmore and his co-liquidator to take possession of the society's books and documents. He gave Beardsmore the authorisation to take any legal action that was needed to get this property. The judge also ordered that Chris Lang hand over everything related to the society to Beardsmore within two days. Chris Lang did not do that. Instead, he dodged for weeks. Then, on Monday, the 26th of November 1962, Lang and his wife, who was chair of the society, called a meeting of its members in Auburn. The goal was to fight the winding up order. More than 100 members turned out, and so did Beardsmore, his offsider, the registrar's inspectors, and a handful of police. They were refused admittance, and the door was locked against them. Beardsmore and Cohen, the cops, waited outside for 20 minutes until a society turncoat came down and let them in. A detective in Beardsmore rushed up to the stage. When this officer tried to arrest Chris Lang, 20 or so people pushed the policeman out of the way. The Sydney Morning Herald reported this on its front page the following morning Women screamed as a fight began. A Herald photographer got clobbered police called for reinforcements and lang was protected by a wall of people mrs lang demanded that police produce a warrant they couldn't chris lang gave a speech promising that no one in the society was going to be out of pocket he claimed he was being harassed by the registrar lang was still speaking when police tried to arrest him the sydney morning herald quote another angry struggle followed and mr lang was pushed to the floor once again a group of people tried to push and pull police away Five police picked up Mr. Lang by the legs and arms, pushed their way through the crowd, and carried him out of the hall. The Herald ran a photo of this, of Chris Lang being dragged down the stairs backwards, on its front page. What was going through Henry Beardsmore's mind at this point? Was he only doing his duty? Did part of him feel like he was finishing off what his father had started? I don't know but as I said, it's a very strange sequel to what had happened almost exactly 30 years earlier. Yet, it didn't end there. Chris Lang would stand trial on serious charges. It was alleged he'd been telling members and the board that loans had been approved and then using the cash. There were about two dozen instances totaling close to £25,000, but only a small number of charges would be pursued in the courts. In February 1964... After tortuous trial proceedings, Lang was found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. But an appeal based on misdirection of the jury was successful. Chris Lang faced a second trial in December 1964, and this was even more protracted. This one ended with the judge getting sick and dismissing the jury. So they had to start over in April 1965. Chris Lang's defense was that he'd done so much overtime for the society and had incurred so many expenses that he was entitled to restitution. And that was what he'd taken out of the society's accounts. By this third trial, Chris Lang was claiming the society owed him £2,000. In May 1965, Lang was found guilty on three charges of fraudulent misappropriation. He was jailed for two and a half years. In October 1965, Lang's appeal was dismissed, and off to jail he went. After he was released, Lang got a job as a gardener for a hospital in Auburn. On the 13th of February 1967, Chris Lang brought a defamation suit against Henry Beardsmore. Chris Lang said that two years earlier, at a meeting of the society with over 200 people present, and while the trials were still underway, Henry Beardsmore had said, "Quote." Lang should have served five years for fraud. He had the luck to win on appeal. He was lucky again at his second trial. Lang was facing a certain conviction when the judge became ill. Beardsmore had allegedly continued quote, He will be tried next month and is sure to get five years. There is no chance of him getting off. He is guilty and frightened to enter the witness box. Don't forget, it was your money he stole. At his trial, he accused me of making a fortune out of liquidations, but I barely met expenses. I want to see him where he belongs, behind bars. Henry Beardsmore's defense was qualified privilege, and that his remarks had been misrepresented by Lang. This defamation case would last 11 days. During proceedings for the jury, Lang showed he could write down in shorthand what Beardsmore had allegedly said. But a tape recording of the meeting was also produced. Surely you would have thought that would settle it but it was obviously not clear-cut because the jury deliberated for more than two hours. They gave the verdict to Beardsmore. Lang would also have to pay his own and Beardsmore's legal costs. This verdict came down on the 27th of February, 1967. The following year, Lang moved to appeal, and again he lost. He then lodged an appeal with the High Court. That was still pending and going nowhere on the 10th of May 1969. That was when Lang was in the bankruptcy court, put there by Beardsmore, to who he still owed $6,780. Chris Lang was ruined. Henry Beardsmore was vindicated. This battle had lasted nearly seven years. And it was the final act, in the strange case, of the Langs and the Beardsmores, which had begun before World War II in the era of Sir Charles Kingsford Smith and of pounds and pennies, and ended during the Vietnam War in the space age, with Australia now getting used to dollars and cents. As for Jack Lang, he died after Vietnam, after a man landed on the moon, after Australia had colour television, on the 27th of September, 1975. Jack Lang had lived to be 98. The Sydney Morning Herald, which had been so hostile back in the day, ran an affectionate editorial headlined, The Big Fella. Lang had been a, quote, man ahead of his time, a prophet whose long gaunt shadow falls indelibly across that confused, tumultuous era. The paper closed its celebration of Lang with this. Jack Lang quoted from his brother-in-law's verse on his own death more than 50 years ago, They are words he would have liked as his own epitaph. I loved Australia first, I strove for her, I fought for her, and when at last I die, then who to wear the wattle has a better right than I? While Robert Henry Beardsmore was often on the wrong side of history, I reckon he would have also claimed that verse as his own. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia thank you very much for coming with me on what turned out to be a far deeper dive into so many rabbit holes than I'd anticipated. I hope you thought it was worthwhile. If you've enjoyed the show, let me know with a rating or review at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your downloads. This podcast was made with reference materials I was able to access thanks to Patreon contributions. If you'd like to kick in, go to patreon.com forward slash forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. As a show supporter, you'll get a shout out and access to bonus episodes and other goodies. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news.